Well, in light of international events, uh, we're calling an audible uh, today. Instead of continuing in our on-mission series, as we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts, I'm going to take us back to a passage that I preached online, and it was on Cozy TV right after COVID first hit our country and our community. Uh, We'll return to Acts chapter 24 next weekend. You see, preaching involves at least two responsibilities. The first is to explain the Bible and relate it to life. The second is to take life and explain it in light of Scripture. And today, I'm hoping to accomplish both purposes. I love it if you take your Bible and open it up to the book of Psalms, Psalm 46. If you came without a Bible today, feel free to use your phone or mobile device. We also have Bibles in front of you. Uh, uh, We'd love for you to, to open up a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. This song, written by the sons of Korah, is set in the context of catastrophic chaos, troublesome times, unparalleled uncertainty. The writer's world was crumbling around him. Some commentators believe the setting of this psalm comes from the time King Hezekiah was surrounded by the army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, 46 towns and villages in Judah had been overthrown. At least 185,000 troops encircled Jerusalem. Kind of sounds like world headlines this week, doesn't it? This psalm was written with the nation of Israel in mind, but it certainly applies to you and I individually and to us as a church as well. Now, before we get into the text of the psalm, I want you to see a word that's used three times. It's the word selah. Well, you'll notice it right after verse 3, right after verse 7, and again after verse 11. This word is used 74 times in the Old Testament, 71 times in the book of Psalms, three times in the book of Habakkuk. Now, most versions of the Bible do not translate Selah, but rather transliterate it, meaning it's left in the Hebrew and just brought into our English Bibles. We know from the title of this psalm to the choir master, a song. This psalm was designed to be sung. And so Selah likely refers to a musical rest in which singers stop singing to take a breath so only the musical instruments could be heard. According to one Bible dictionary, it can also signify this musical crescendo followed by silent reflection. The Septuagint, which is the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates Selah this way, intermission. (laughs) The New Living Translation picks up on that and uses this word, interlude. 
Here's the idea. The idea is to get us to take a breath in order to reflect and to remember. I like how the Amplified Version renders it. Pause and calmly think about what you just read. In addition, Selah is thought to be rendered from two Hebrew words translated as to praise and to lift up. So perhaps the singers pause to think about what they had just sung in praise to God. Oh, by the way, it's in the imperative, which means it's a command, which means most of us don't do this naturally. But we're told to pause, to reflect. This seems to be how the word is used in Habakkuk chapter 3, when the armies of Assyria had been attacking Israel. God's people are caused, are called to consider the weightiness of God and his word. I like Charles Spurgeon's insight into Selah. He says this, we may well pause and renew our confidence in the God who has never failed us and who never will fail any who trust in him. And so the best way to think of Selah is a combination of all these meanings. We could say it like this, no matter what happens, no matter what's been stirred up in your own life through personal things that are going on, no matter what's happening internationally, no matter what happens, we can rest in God's promise in his presence, and in his power. Now, because the word Selah appears three times in this passage, we're going to follow the natural outline of this psalm by reflecting, remembering, and resting each time we come across the word Selah. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, and in honor of God's word, let's read it together, being reminded that this is his inspired, authoritative, inerrant, and relevant word of God. Let's read together, and we'll include that word, Selah, the three times it's used. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. 
He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You can be seated. Friends, no matter what happens, we can rest in God's promise. We can rest in his presence and his power. Let's look first at his promise. God is for you as your refuge. And we see this in the first three verses. The name for God here is Elohim. It reminds us that he is creator, he is king, he is judge, and he is savior. So amid whatever mess we find ourselves in, God promises to be our refuge, our strength, and our help. Would you observe God is not pointing to a refuge out there, like go over there for refuge. No, he himself is our refuge. God is our refuge even when, or especially when, that which seemed steady is now unstable. The word literally means to flee as in running to this impenetrable shelter. God promises to hide us and to help us. We're invited to cry out in prayer like we hear in Psalm 142.5. I cry to you, O Lord. This is his cry. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So God promises to hide us in his shelter and to help us by his strength. Oh, don't miss what we read next. He is a very present help in trouble. The word very means he helps abundantly, greatly, over the top right now in our present situation. Now, this is literally translated like this. A help, he has been found exceedingly. Aren't you glad we serve a God who comes to our assistance when we're afflicted? Yeah. He's always available, always accessible. Do you know a human being like that? That's always available, always accessible? Only God himself, but he's always there for us. Psalm 9, verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That word strength implies we can rely on his might when we feel weak and defenseless. The phrase a very present help means God is quick to give assistance. Listen, right now, at this exact time, Time when you and I are in a bad place. Right now, right now, 
He is everything we need, and he will be everything we need in the future. Look at it this way. Because, his, because God has proved himself in the past, we can trust him in the present and be confident that he will be with us in the future. I love how Corey Ten Boom writes. Listen to this sentence, or I guess it's three short sentences. She says this, look within and be depressed. That's where some of you have been. You're just looking inside and you're like, I'm depressed. And she says this, look without, look around you, and be distressed. Depressed when you look in, distressed when you look around. And she says this, look to Christ and be at rest. In verse 2, the writer imagines the worst calamity that could possibly hit. So notice, he describes earthquakes, volcanoes erupting, mountains falling, slipping into the sea. It's really a picture of the on-making of the world. In your minds, go back to Genesis chapter 1. God divides the land from the sea, and here we see the land thrown back into the sea. And even though the earth gives way or the landscape suddenly changes, we don't have to be afraid. You see, mountains provided refuge in times of war. They're the most secure part of nature. They're the most fixed and firm things on earth. Verse 3 describes the roaring waters of the sea. That's a picture of our lives when we feel out of control. It's just like there's like a roar in there. You're churned up. You're concerned and anxious. The word roaring means to be in great commotion, to rage, or to be at war. Man, our whole world seems to be in commotion right now. People are wondering, what's Russia's next move? On top of that, we wonder what China has up its sleeve. And so when the mountains tremble at its swelling, refers to the pride or the haughtiness of the mountains. Our sense of pride and our sense of invulnerability these past two years has been shattered and it's been replaced this past week with quaking and great concern. And so the psalmist is saying, when our security is suddenly gone, we are to seek refuge in God himself. Our sense of helplessness and fear should drive us to him. I'm praying, as many of you are, that God will bring us to our knees in humility Remember what we read in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, notice what God's saying. If, if my people do these four things, if they humble themselves, and they pray, and they seek my face, what's the fourth one? And turn from their wicked ways. Now let me go back to the beginning. See the if, and now we see the then. If then, it's conditional. 
my people, do those four things, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so team, let's take a time out right now. Let's pause as we come to the first Selah. Let's reflect. Let's remember. Let's rest in God's promises right now. Even when the whole world seems turned upside down, you can run to him for refuge. Do that right now. No matter what happens, we can rest in God's promise, presence, and power. Let's look then at his presence. He is with you as your resource. God promises us shelter when we seek him. And fortunately, we don't have to run far to find him. Here's why. His presence is right here with us. Verse 4 paints a picture which is easy for us to miss. So what's the city of God? Well, that's Jerusalem. It's a beautiful city. Beth and I had the privilege of being there 10 years ago, and several from Edgewood are going to Israel uh, this spring. Yeah. But one thing about Jerusalem is it does not have a river running through it, which makes this verse interesting. You see, other cities and countries of that day had rivers. Babylon was built on the Euphrates. Egypt had the Nile. Rome had the Tiber. The Quad Cities has the Mississippi and the Rock. <laughs> Jerusalem did not have a physical river, but it had something even better. The flowing presence of God. And the title Most High is the name Elion. It refers to God as the highest of all. There's no one higher than him. He is sovereign and supreme and, it's a mind blow, he's present with us. God's grace flows like a river to bring gladness and joy to his people. So while the ocean is raging and foaming, God's presence is depicted as a calm and gently flowing stream. God's favor is often denoted as a river. Psalm 36, 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This image of scripture represents abundance and peace even when everything else is falling apart. God's presence with his people is one of the central truths of Scripture. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's from the root word, Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was used of Jesus in Matthew one twenty three. That means we put our faith and trust in Jesus. God is with us at all times. Notice the last part of verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. So no matter how bad things get, God's presence means he will help us. And when we awake to start a new day, you and I can experience what Jeremiah did in Lamentations chapter 3. Check out what he wrote. And remember, Jerusalem at this point is being shellacked. He's seeing people killed. He's seeing people deported to Babylon. It's on fire, and he's down until he remembers who God is 
because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Don't miss this. God is present with his people even when the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. The word rage is the same word used in verse 3 to describe the roar of the waters. And so when the nations are agitated like the waves of the sea, God is still with his people. Do you believe that, church? It's a challenge sometimes, right? Especially when you don't feel it. Ah, that's when we go to the truth of God's word. No matter how bad things get, we can always count on his comforting presence. Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. (laughs) We're introduced to another name for God here. Jehovah Sabaoth. The Lord of the angel armies. The Lord Almighty has all the hosts of heaven ready to do his work. I'm reminded of Psalm 2410 that asks this question. Who is he, this king of glory? We're given the answer. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. He is the king of glory, Selah. God is the king and the commander over every army, both spiritual and earthly, and he mobilizes them to accomplish his purposes. It was the promise of his presence, you'll recall, that gave Moses peace when he was uncertain about the future. Exodus 33, verse 14, words of God to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I love how this verse ends. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As in verse 1, God is depicted not only as powerful, but also as an impenetrable fortress that we can run to for safety. By the way, this verse is where Martin Luther got the words to a mighty fortress, is our God a bulwark never failing Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Oh, don't miss this. He's the God of Jacob. Well, who was Jacob? Uh, He was known as a deceiver. He had like this twisted mind and twisted heart. Uh, Aren't a lot of us like Jacob? Even though Jacob had a lot of faults, God stuck with him, right? He changed him, molded him, equipped him, transformed him into a man of faith, changing his name to what? Israel, which means the prince of God. (laughs) Aren't you glad God takes selfish, self-centered sinners like you and me, and he changes us from the inside out? I love the lyrics we sang just recently. We've sung the song the last two weeks. Here they are. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And so let's reflect, let's remember, and let's rest now at this second Selah by thanking God for his presence with us. Brothers and sisters, no matter what happens, 
we can rest in God's promise, his presence, and power. Let's look then at his power. Settle this. (laughs) He is above you, way above you, as your ruler. Look at verse 8. We're given an invitation. Come, (laughs) behold the works of the Lord. We're to run or pursue in order to behold. The word behold has several nuances. It means to perceive through sight, to peer, to spy out, to gaze intently upon, to observe fully. And it expresses strong feelings of surprise and hope, certainty and expectation. To behold has the idea of vividness, emotional involvement. Oh, and it's in the imperative, meaning it's a command. It's variously translated like this. Lo, behold, look, note. (laughs) Some time ago, I heard this phrase. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. And we think about it. There's truth there. So if you're beholding a possession, it's all you're thinking about that can become an idol that begins blowing back on you. It affects who you are. If you're treasuring a person way above that you should or an activity, a hobby, sports, travel team, whatever it is, what you behold, this is me. Well, that's what you become. And I wrote this sentence down Tell me what you're beholding, and I'll tell you what you're becoming. Question, are you beholding God? This verse tells us we're to behold the works of the Lord. In this case, the work of the Lord included desolations, which means ruin and astonishment, wasting dismay and horror. Another work of the Lord is mentioned in verse 9. It shows us his position as the almighty God, Check this, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Now at that time, the Assyrian Empire was the mightiest on the globe. And like Russia today, it had already overrun a number of smaller kingdoms and it hoped to conquer the entire world, but God had other plans eventually. You see, a broken bow is of no value. A shattered spear is no longer effective. Chariots which are on fire cannot function. And it's easy, though, for us to feel helpless and hopeless. But in his position as sovereign king, settle this, he is in charge. Listen, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has defeated our depravity. He's defeated the devil himself. He's defeated death. And he has broken our bondage so we don't have to be burned by the fires of hell. Now, I want you to see something. Most of this psalm is written in the third person. But when the psalmist speaks, where the psalmist speaks about God, but notice verse 10. The Lord speaks in the first person here. And he's speaking from his position as sovereign ruler. Well, what does he say? Well, let's listen. Be 
still and know that I am God. To be still means to let fall. It referred to the dropping of weapons. We're to cease fighting a battle we can't win. It means not exerting yourself. Here's the picture. The picture is of opening our clenched fists and and our churned up guts and our worries in our minds and our anger on our faces and our fear. Here's what be still means. It means to open your hands and surrender to God and to say, you're God and I'm not. And I guess you're doing a pretty good job of running the world and you don't need my help. (laughs) It's the idea of surrender. It's chilling out. It's saying, God, you're in control. It's where we cease and desist. We surrender. We let go. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. Oh, don't miss. The purpose of being still is so that we can know God. Not just know about him, but know him relationally. It's not enough to just know about him. We can't know God experientially, listen, until we're still before him. When we surrender to him. This is actually a rebuke. We're to cease striving and fretting and working in our own self-effort and fully Submit ourselves to God. Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Oh, notice the last part of verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so as we quiet our souls, as we reflect on his position of power as Lord of the whole world, we will recognize his supremacy and his inevitable triumph over the nations. But it won't happen until we're still and surrendered before him. And when we are, then the coming exaltation among all nations will give us great hope. Brothers and sisters, no matter what happens, remember this, God will be exalted among the nations. God will be exalted in the earth. He is working out his way and his will. He is working all things for his glory and for our ultimate good. Verse 11 is a great summary of the entire psalm. Would you observe it repeats verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We can trust in his person and in his plan. Jesus Christ is God, and he's Lord of history. Nothing has happened outside of his plan. God never says, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't see that one coming. Listen, he's in charge, and you and I can trust him. Through incredible upheaval, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, those who know Jesus Christ through the new birth have nothing to fear when the nations rage against one another. God is our refuge. I'm going to invite you now. We're going to pause 
And I want you to settle the surrender issue. Are you in charge of your life? Or have you surrendered your life to him? If you haven't, do it now. If you have in the past, but you know you're on the throne of your life now, surrender, repent, turn to him. Affirm the central truth of scripture that he is supremely powerful and he will be exalted among the nations. You see, no matter what happens, we can rest in God's promise, his presence, and power. Let me take us to four action steps. Number one, get right with God. The first sentence I'm going to say is bold, shocking maybe even, but I wouldn't change it. So here's what I want to say. Here's what I want you to hear. What's happening in the world is bad, but hell is worse. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ through the new birth, you are in deep trouble forever. James 4.14 asks this question. What is your life? It's a good question. Many of us are on a quest. What's my life all about? And we're like, well, I do this, I do that. Here I am. This is who I am. James says, what is your life? And we're given an answer. Here's the answer. You are a what? Mist. A vapor. You're here and then gone. Proverbs 27.1 reminds us to not boast about tomorrow because we don't know what a day will bring forth. Friends, settle this. Life is way too unpredictable, way too brief to live it without God at the center. We count our life in years. God tells us in Psalm 90 verse 12 to number our what? Days. Do we do that? See, the truth of the matter is every one of us is one heartbeat away from eternity. Could be a car accident. And there have been some bad car accidents in the Quad Cities. Two died yesterday from a car accident. Could be a viral infection. Could be a terrorist attack. It could be a long-range missile that could snuff out our lives in an instant. 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, David said, Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between you and death. And I think of that when I see those images of families running with their little kids behind them as they're heading to the border. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus gives an answer to a question many of us often ask. Here's the question. Let me give you the context. They're building this tower. And these construction workers are building it, and the tower collapses. 18 people die. And they're asking questions those around Jesus, questions like you and I ask, like, why? Why did God let that happen? And some bold people are like, oh, they must have had it coming. They must be worse than we are. The answer Jesus gives 
this is one of those you don't see this one coming. Verse 5, he doesn't give a theological treatise on the problem of evil. No, he personalizes the tragedy. Words of Jesus. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Listen, we're all going to die one way or another. So I got to ask you a question. Why wouldn't you want to get ready today? Why would you want to put that off? And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus in repentance and full surrender and asked him to save you, you need to do so right now before it's too late. Related to that, number two, get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. These events remind us that this world will not last forever. Jesus is coming back, and you better be ready. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke 21, 10, and 11. He gives us a taste of what it'll be like in the last days. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and what else? Pestilences, plagues, pandemics. You see, prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes and the return of Christ is closer today than it was yesterday. Do you believe that, church? Well, if so, we better be ready Many believe Ezekiel chapter 38 refers to Russia as Magog. Some, that's the nation to the north. Some have said Ukraine represents Gomer. Now, I'm not going to go any further than that today, only to ask this question. Are you ready to meet Jesus Christ? Or will you be left behind? By the way, several of us met this week to plan a prophecy conference here at Edgewood, and I wish I could share more details, but we're still trying to firm some things up. Now, at the very minimum, the news headlines should remind us of something, that there's an even greater event of more sudden destruction which awaits mankind. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 1 John 2.28, it's a warning written to believers and now little children, it's so tender, abide in him, stay close to Christ. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame at his appearing. Would you want to be doing that sin that you do often When Jesus returns, would you want to be all up in gossip about somebody and Jesus returns? You see, the study of end times is designed to have a purifying effect on his church and on each of us. That relates to number three, tell people about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, a crisis always creates opportunity. 
When Jesus described the signs of the end of the age, remember, nations against nations, earthquakes, pestilences, famine. Verse 13, same passage. This is what Jesus says about all that. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. (laughs) Why? Because people are nervous. There's unprecedented openness to spiritual matters right now. People are unsettled and nervous, so make sure you talk to your family members about Christ. Make sure that your friends have heard the gospel, have heard your testimony, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow classmates. Don't hold back. Let's be bold and point people to Christ, which relates to number four. It's time for us to be the church. Church. <laughs> And for that to happen, we need as many as possible to gather for worship, recognizing that some are not ready or able to do that right now. But here's what I want to say. If you can gather with God's people for worship, I don't know why you wouldn't. See, some Christians have gotten out of the habit and have replaced uh, activities. Activities have replaced the habit of gathering with God's people. Acts chapter 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Listen to this next line. And awe came upon every soul. Wouldn't you want that here? That awe would come upon every soul praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So here's what I want to say. Let's stop playing games, church. Let's bind together and pray as if everything depends on God, because it does. And let's deal decisively with sin in our lives. Let's make sure we're in God's word, that we're taking our growth seriously, that we're giving grace and forgiveness to others. This week, I read an interview it was on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it was from a pastor, Vassal Ostri. He's a pastor near Kiev and a professor at a theological seminary. He was asked to reflect on how the church in Ukraine is shepherding people. Here's his first response. If the church is not relevant at a time of crisis then it's not relevant in a time of peace. Their church building has become a shelter. During this critical moment in their church, which has about a 1,000 people attending on a normal Sunday, it has become a place of service. This is what he says. We've recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors, if necessary. This pastor has decided to stay in Ukraine with his family and with his church. He said these words. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. This week I came across a video showing a Ukrainian family singing the song, He 
will hold me fast. We have a 30-second clip of that now, thanks to Dave Bennett. Let's watch that now. the dad smile there's a father leading his family leading them to lean on the Lord singing the truth that he will hold them fast when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor there was a feeling of exhilaration among our enemies But one man knew better. Japanese Admiral Yamamoto knew that rather than victory, Japan had instead sowed seeds of destruction for its final defeat. In his famous quote, he said these words, We have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. Listen. These events may indeed awaken our world, but my prayer is that the sleeping giant called the church will wake up and resolve to show and share the gospel of Jesus Christ like we have never done before. Are you with me, church? See, no matter what happens, we can rest in God's promise, his presence, and his power. On Thursday, I received a text request from Mark, a prayer request by text from Mark Drake. Some of you know Mark and Sarah. He heads up Youth Hope, uh, one of our Go Team partners. Mark and Sarah were here last night. This is what the text said. I want to send you a quick message to ask the church to pray for Oksana and Peter. Her daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren are leaving for the Poland border. Oksana and Peter and her son will be separated from the rest of their family. All able-bodied men have been called up to the military in the Ukraine to fight. I'm sure you heard that. 18 to 60-year-olds are called to fight now. Please ask for safe travels for Sophia and Sasha. In God's gracious way, in a few weeks, they'll be praising Jesus here at Edgewood with us. Pray Peter, Oksana, and Max will be able to get out of the country. Soon, later in the day, Thursday, I got this update. They got the green light, made it out of Ukraine. They have very little money. They need to travel across Poland to Germany and then get flights to the U.S. Mark told me last night that they've experienced some snags now in Poland and in Germany. Let's pray for them and for others in Ukraine right now. So here's a challenge before we pray, because I know what it's like. you tempted to go, man, the service is almost over finally. (laughs) But we're not done yet. I'm going to call us to pray. The Bible says prayer is wrestling, which means it's hard. That's why some of us don't pray. So I'm going to lead in prayer. I want to encourage you to hear the words that I pray and roll them around in your head. Let them sift down into your soul and you pray those back to the Lord and we're all going to pray together united for Ukraine right now. Lord Almighty, as we watch war march forward in the Ukraine, 
We rest in your reign and rule over the world, for you are Jehovah Sabaoth. Thank you for the truth of Isaiah 40, verse 22. God, you are enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We pray for you to bring your peace and your protection to the dear people of Ukraine. Thank you for Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. May those who don't know the peace of Christ be drawn to the Prince of Peace right now. And we ask for safe travels for Sophia and Sasha as they make their way across Poland and then into Germany. We pray for Peter, Oksana, and Max who are left behind along with thousands, millions of others. God, would you use pastors and missionaries and followers of Jesus to spread the good news of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. Help them to be unafraid and unashamed of the gospel. Give them supernatural courage and boldness to proclaim the life-changing message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray for Awana clubs in Ukraine as they reach 25,000 children with the gospel through 548 Awana clubs every week. May they continue to reach out to kids in creative ways with the love of Jesus. Also, we pray for the Celebrate Recovery Ministries recently launched in Ukraine. We pray for the Word of Life Bible Institute. We pray for the Ukraine Bible Society and other gospel-centered, Christ-exalting ministries. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. <laughs> oh God, would you please turn the heart of the Russian leaders away from war and toward peace. Give our president and leaders of other countries wisdom and courage to do the right thing. Lord Almighty, you say in Psalm 46 that while the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, all you need to do is utter your voice and the earth would melt. We thank you that you make war cease to the end of the earth. You break the bow. You shatter the spear. You burn the chariots with fire. We pray you would make this war to cease. In the meantime, we choose to be still and know that you are God because you will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted in the earth. Work your way and your will for your glory and enable us to trust your providence even when we don't feel your presence. Oh God, use this situation to awaken the American church from our spiritual slumber. Use this time of uncertainty and persecution to stoke the fires of repentance and revival among your people. Indeed, as Psalm 85, 6 says, revive us again that we may rejoice in you. And we pray for you to do more than all we can ask or imagine according to your power at work within us. To you alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Have a good rest of the day.